Behind the Music Biz, a Raised Rowdy podcast hosted by Peyton Heben. of Behind the Music Biz, a Raised Rowdy podcast. This is episode 13. I'm your host, Peyton Heben. On this episode, we are joined by a, a co-worker of mine as of recent. Uh, he's the current vice president of promotion and artist development at Riverhouse Artists, and he's been in the music business for quite some time with an extensive resume in radio. <laughs> so please welcome Lance Houston. Thanks for having me, Peyton. I appreciate it. Yeah, Absolutely. quite some time. Boy, you make it sound really long and really old. No, honestly... <laughs> I mean, how old are you? I'm 46. Yeah, you don't look 46. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. That's a very nice compliment. But also hearing, <laughs> like when I hear you talk about the things you've done in the business and I'm in your office and I see all the plaques of like, <laughs> we talked about this, I think like two days ago, you had the Hunter Hayes guitar and Hunter Hayes looked like he was 12. He was 12. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think he was like 18 or 19, but yeah, he looked 12. That's for sure. But I was just like, dang, like, I mean even though you're not old at all, your <laughs> resume shows like you are in the, most, in the nicest way possible because you have so much experience. So when did you start to just jump right in, I guess? When did you start uh, in the business? You know, um, us radio people, most of us radio people have a really interesting like origin story, I think. We all just knew one day we wanted to talk on the radio. And I don't know how or why it makes no sense, but I can remember being, you know, five, six years old and just wanting, I knew one day I was going to talk on the radio and I remember asking for like one of those Mr. Microphones when I was a kid. This was back in the early eighties. So, but basically you would tune your radio to like AM 640 or something and then you could use this microphone and it would broadcast a tiny signal to the radio and your voice would come out of the radio I remember in like middle school, well, maybe more late elementary school than early middle school, like recording songs off the radio on a tape, you know, on a boom box and then playing them back and talking them up or talking about the artist. Um, so stupid stuff like that. But it's so funny. All of my friends in the radio business, like we all kind of have that story. And my mom's a teacher and she's retired now. She was a teacher and she, um, she was always really good about keeping, I'm the oldest of five, all of our kids like records. So we all had these books where it was like, you filled this out in kindergarten. It was how much did you weigh and how tall were you and what did you want to be when you grow up? And I, from first grade, it said like doctor and a DJ. And then like second grade would be like lawyer and a DJ. And then third grade would be like president and a DJ. <laughs> and so there was just always this underlying theme. So uh, I was in uh, high school and uh, my mom saw an ad in our local paper. I I, I born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, but I grew up in Demopolis, which is about tiny town, about an hour south of there. And um, she saw an ad in the paper that came out twice a week. And it said that the radio station, the local radio station was looking for somebody just like push buttons on the weekends. And uh, she was like, did you see that in the paper? I'm like, no. <laughs> She's like, you should go down there. And I was like, I should. So I went down and I was 15 and I, I went in and I applied and um, I didn't hear anything back. And then um, like a couple weeks later, the ad was back in the paper. And she said, the ad's back in the paper. You should go back down there. I was like, okay. 
So I went back down and I met the GM. Um, I still remember his name, Ellis Sampson. And he was a big guy. And he was like, were you in here the other week? Did you uh, fill out? I was like, yes, sir, I did. You know, and he was like, well, can you start this weekend? And so I was like, oh, my God. I think I made, you know, 425 an hour. And um, I literally pushed buttons on the weekends and um, just played like CD shows, like a countdown kind of show. So I never, I wasn't talking or anything. And then like this old guy did our Saturday night. I mean, this is... 8,000 people in this town. That's about all this radio station reached. And so, um, yeah, so the old guy doing like the Saturday night all request show quit. And I was like, do you think I could do that show? And of course, he's like, sure, why not? No one else wants to work on a Saturday night. So uh, so I started doing that. And then I was doing mornings with um, the guy that was like the assistant program director by the end of high school. So I would get up my junior and senior year of high school at like 5.30 a.m. and um, be at about 5.15, be at the station by 6. And then I would leave Again, small town, I would leave it like 7.54 to be at school by 8. <laughs> um, but I did that for almost two years. And then when I went to college, I went to Tuscaloosa, and um, I took my resume around to every station. We were like a mix of like oldies to 80s is kind of what we were. But um, I did not like country music. I hated country music growing up. All my friends like Chattahoochee and all that. And I thought that's just redneck music. And um, I took my resume around to every station in Tuscaloosa. And the only one that called me back was one of the two country stations. And I was like, oh, damn. So three months in, I fell in love with country music. I mean, how can you not once you're in there? And that's when we literally had two CD players in the studio and you would hit play and then you'd fade out the song manually and then that and then you'd play. And so like you were you were engaged in the music. It's not like it is today, mostly run by computers and stuff where you can kind of turn it down or tune it out. But um, you were playing jingles in between songs and and that's when radio was really, really fun. But yeah, ever since then, that was 1995, 96. Ever since then, I've been... Um, doing country music business, so pretty so, crazy origin story. <laughs> what kind of music did you grow up on? You know, my stepdad listened to oldies a lot. Um, we'd be in car trips, and that's all we would hear, like Creedence Clearwater Revival and the Beatles and all that, and it was so annoying growing up because, you know, my mom, when we would be in the car going to school, would listen to pop music, so, you know, I remember Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson and all that. I remember getting the Thriller album was my first album, and like what an album to have and own and um for your first one but um yeah so a little bit of everything pop and oldies basically and then um yeah so i i just my friends in high school like country but it just it wasn't for me in the the very early 90s which ironically is when it was in its heyday you know but i got to learn that music once i started um at the radio station tuscaloosa you know playing all that stuff from clint flack forward um, and then Probably the real highlight of my career uh, in Montgomery, I worked for a station that was Today's Best Country and all the country legends. And three or four times an hour, we played a Dolly, a Waylon, a Willie, um, Loretta Lynn. Um, I mean, all of those. And I'll tell you, I fell in love with that old classic country, Hank Jr. And um, so that was really cool from a perspective of it gave me a lot of the backstory and the history about, about you know, country music from the 50s on, which was really cool. I really hadn't had that until then. So so before we get into the the timeline of your resume, which I have right here in front of me. I think you only have like 074. Yeah, so it says <laughs> positions prior to 2007 available upon request. So for in radio, to get a promotion, you pretty much have to move. I mean, some people have gotten lucky. I know people that have been at the same station for 20 or 30 years, but that is extremely rare. So if you want a noob job that pays better in a bigger market, you generally have to move. So us, us radio folks tend to move around a lot. Us former radio folks, we tend to move around a lot. And so... Um, 
Um, yeah, so before 07, I, I started in Tuscaloosa, and um, I ended up going to work for um, kind of a division of what was Capstar at the time in Fort Lauderdale for a couple of years. That was oh, really nice. cool for me to get out of small town Alabama and kind of find myself, which was really awesome. And then um, that ended up shutting down after they got bought by what's now Clear Channel. And um, it was AMFM at the time. And then I ended up going to Montgomery, working there. And then I got to Atlanta in 07. And that's kind of where that picks up. Nice. Yeah. So you have 2007 to 2013 in Atlanta. Yep. 2013 to 14 in Baltimore. Yep. In 07, um, I launched 94.9 The Bull there with uh, my friend and mentor, Clay Honeycutt, who now runs um, one of the big machine labels. So he just got promoted he yesterday. Just, yeah, he did. He got a big promotion. I'm very proud of I him. I got the country air check uh, <laughs> email. It was like breaking news. Breaking news. Honeycutt up at BLM <laughs> or BMLG or whatever. Yeah, so Clay's another old radio guy that crossed over a couple of years ago and uh, went to run Big Loud for a while, and he was there for a while, and then uh, has been at Big Machine since. But yeah, he and I flipped that station together in Atlanta that was fun starting from the ground up we were up against two heritage stations that had been in Atlanta for a very long time and it was a very long drawn out battle there were mornings where um, in the beginning we weren't doing so great in the ratings and I thought there was a chance I would get in the car and turn the radio on and it might be pop or something but uh, we made it we survived we ran one of those other stations out of the format and then it was a one-on-one battle and from there it was just a long slow grind but right before I ended up leaving to go to Baltimore we were beating the other station pretty handily which was a really freaking great feeling. Interesting. So you have Baltimore. Then, mm-hmm. so you were only in Baltimore for a year. So I was there about a year and a half. Um, I went. There's a legendary station there called WPOC, um, and uh, Lori D. Young, a legendary morning show host that's been there since the mid '80s. And number one, no competition all the time. Like it was great, and it was one of those stations that, um, you know, the. I don't know, like the interior was great, but it needed like a fresh coat of paint. So um, did that and the station got record high ratings that it had never seen before in the PPM era. And my company flipped a station in Boston to country. And um, I texted my friend Clay, who was over like um, all the country markets at that time. I was like, hey, I really like that move in Boston. Good luck against that big station KLV up there. They're really a powerhouse. He was like, thanks. I think it's going to be fun. And that was it. And then for months, like they ran commercial free all summer. And then, um, then I got a phone call and, um, it was my boss, Meg. And she goes, well, I think Boston's going to call you. And I was like, why? Like we're number one. I'm loving life here in Baltimore. I love it here. It was a really nice transition from living in the South all my life to, you know, the mid Atlantic where it's not the Northeast, but it's not the South either. Baltimore though. Baltimore, people, all right, I'm just going to... It's a little questionable over there. It's a great city. There are parts of Baltimore that are certainly not the best. If you've ever watched the show The Wire, um, that is a very small part of Baltimore and obviously over-dramatized, but we lived in Canton right over on the harbor, and it was a really cool area. There was a liquor store six steps from my backyard. <laughs> there was like seven, eight restaurants. And living in Atlanta and Alabama and Florida, you know, it's, those are all driving cities, kind of like Nashville, except for a few select neighborhoods. But I'd never been able to walk to a restaurant before, you know, I'd never been able to literally walk out my back door and less than 30 seconds be in a liquor store to buy a 12 pack of beer or whatever. And that was, and it was awesome. And it's a beautiful town. And the history, like you could go out on our front porch and you walk one block up and you're on the walk. You're on the harbor, and you can see the big flag uh, that's flying over Fort McHenry, which is where Francis Scott Key wrote the national anthem. Nice, and it's right across the water. And it's Baltimore is beautiful. I if 
I, I get it, and I know the reputation, but um, Baltimore is a, a great, great city. I have my aunt lives in uh, Crofton. Okay, so I've spent a lot of time in that area. I've never really been to the city of Baltimore. I was there one time as a kid. That's all I remember. Okay. So I remember we drove past the Raven Stadium. I yeah, that was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. There's but, a brand new casino right next door to the oh, Raven nice. Stadium now, Horseshoe. It's it's pretty amazing. It's dope. But we've done the, I mean, the outskirts are very nice. And then you have Annapolis yeah. uh, Naval Academy, yeah. which is incredible. My yep. brother visited there uh, two years ago, and it's just absolutely incredible. Yep. DC's, you know, on the weekends, you can yep. get there in 45 minutes. Now, weekdays, it might take you an hour and a half. But um, DC's so close. Philly's, you know, an hour north. That train, one time we were like, let's just go Christmas shopping in New York. So we literally got on an Amtrak train at 8 a.m. and we rode it up to the Acela, up to New York. We got off, one of my friends from Alabama, she came up for the weekend and with all three of us went up there and we got off the train at 10 a.m. in New York. We shopped all day. We were on like the 7 p.m. train home to Baltimore. It was really crazy. It was awesome. Interesting. It yeah. is crazy how all that those cities up there work. So close. Because, I mean... Tampa doesn't have that. <laughs> no, they do have a high-speed rail now. I think that runs from Orlando to Miami or something. So I didn't know they're that. working on it. It's called the Bright Line. They're working on it. They're getting better. That's interesting. About it you there. know that. I'm born and raised in Fort Myers, Florida. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, it's brand new. It's called Bright Line, um, and I hear great things. <laughs> um, but from Boston, you went to. So, rewind. Boston called you. Boston called me. I ended up going. Um, they basically made me an offer I couldn't refuse and uh, went there. Smaller signal than the competition, so we, we knew we would probably never really win. We would never beat them, but um, the WKOB was, you know, number one, number two in the market usually, and we had a pop station called Kiss 108 um, that we, we liked to be number one uh, at iHeart, and so um, our job was, you know, do the best we could and pull down um, pull down KLB just enough that KISS was usually number one, and we did succeed at that mission. We put Bobby Bones on there. Yep. Um, my first time I worked with Bobby, um, who is an incredibly talented morning show host and, He's awesome, and yeah. a very compelling storyline to the show, and uh, we were able to do something really magical there. We signed on as a St. Jude station, um, and we raised like over 800 grand, 600, 800 grand the first year, and over a million the second year, which was pretty unheard of, and um, it was awesome. I, Boston is my favorite city I've ever lived in. We stayed there four years, and it was, even with the snow, even with the cold, the history, I mean, you know, the old North Church where Paul Revere did the to one of my land, two by sea is right there, and you just walk up on it. You're like, "Holy crap! This has been here for that long. It's pretty amazing." I've had some friends from Florida that moved to Boston for work, or they're from. Bo Weirdly enough, where I went to college, FGCU, Florida Gulf Coast. Yeah, a lot of people come from Boston. Huh? It's weird. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I've heard nothing but great things, and it's always been a city I've wanted to go to. Put it on the list. Put it towards the top. You want to go though between late May and September. So when it's not cold. Yes. Late, notice I said late May because yeah. May 1st, May 2nd, you get like a 60 degree day and you're like, yes, it's summer. And then the next day it's 35 again. Is it dreary? <laughs> no, actually, Boston isn't very dreary, okay. um, unlike some other cities. Um, now in the winter, I mean, you know, we had back to back blizzards, two and a half feet of snow, then another foot and a half. Like we were there for that really horrible winter of 2015 where... Um, it was right after the deflate gate football game. Oh, nice. It was like 70 degrees that day. And that was part of the reason why the balls were deflated. At yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember yeah. that? And then literally two days later, it dumped two and a half feet of snow and snowed like four times in the next three weeks. And uh, we ended up getting record Boston snowfall since they started counting in like 1887 or something. So um, we lived through that. We made it. And 
but there was a second that we were like, what do we do? Like, and everyone at work kept telling me, it's usually not this bad. It's usually not this bad. But it was, it was like over 100 inches of snow. It was really nuts for the whole winter. It was crazy. I know you don't give a piss about nothing but the tide. That's not true. But I'm wearing my Titan shirt today. I was going to ask, what, are you a Patriots <laughs> fan? Are you a no, Falcons fan? No, so I've never really cared about the NFL. Um, growing up in Alabama, my stepdad never watched TV or never watched football on Sundays. It was Saturdays only. Um, and um, nope, didn't care. Saints or Falcons and just didn't care. So, um, But I moved to Atlanta and I'm like, oh, okay, like... Sure, Falcons fan, but they were pretty terrible while I lived there the first time. And then um, and then I liked Baltimore, but just wasn't there long enough. We went to a couple Ravens games. And then Boston, just no. And then I, I got to Chicago, and I, we haven't gotten there yet, I don't think. No, but it's I'm right, like, right now. I'm going to be a Bears fan because, you know, I, their legendary story, defense is strong. They were so bad. I, th- I lived there three years, didn't even go to a single game. One year was COVID, but I didn't go to any games. But I'm like, okay, Nashville, Titans, Derrick Henry, my Alabama boy. Like, I'm like, okay. I bought season tickets last year. Nice. Mostly because I'll have like first nab at the new stadium here coming up in the next couple of months. That's pretty sweet. I'm excited about that. Yeah. I don't even know. Are they putting it like directly next to it? Mm-hmm. In the parking lot. For what reason? Well, if you build a new stadium, you usually get the college football national championship game shortly thereafter. That's true. You get to host a Super Bowl. Yeah. It'll be enclosed, too, which will be nice. Um, I think a lot of these cities, um, you're seeing it everywhere. I mean, in D.C., I know two of the sports teams. I think the hockey and the basketball team are moving out to Virginia, probably. And it's about these entertainment districts now. Like, yeah. the Braves' new stadium in Atlanta, like, everyone was screaming when they were moving it out of the city and into the suburbs, but it it's was... It, it, Marietta, right? It's near Marietta, yeah. yeah. It's right on, like, the border of Marietta and Smyrna, but um, it is amazing, and you can go into a bar and buy a beer, and you can walk all around. It's, like, one of those open entertainment districts. The battery? Yeah, the battery, exactly. I love the battery. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. amazing, and it really did... Well. So, it's this is going to be similar to that. So, I think... Cities are just trying to invest while money is relatively cheap. Um, you know, these days interest rates are a little higher, but you could get a business loan, you know, last year at 2% and then you just build it and then they will come. That's kind of the deal. So, but that stadium is like 20 years old now, Nissan Stadium. Like it's, yeah, it's, it looks it. It's old. It's starting I think to it's look lovely. it a little bit. I think it's lovely. I went to the last game of the year against Jacksonville this year. That was the only one I made it to this year, but I went to. In the beginning, they played the Chargers, went mm-hmm. to that game when it was, like, warm out. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the Colts game because my girlfriend's from Indianapolis. Nice. Um, so we went to the Colts game. Uh, my dad's friend had season tickets, like, right behind the end zone. We were a few rows up, so it was pretty cool. Heck, yeah. Super close game. I think it went to overtime. Uh, Colts won, I think. Sounds right. I think they won. I'm just going to try to forget this last season. Yeah. They're, they were terrible. They were pretty bad. They weren't <laughs> terrible. They showed some signs of life. They beat Miami, which was pretty unexpected. But yeah. um, Will Levis. Yeah. He's still something there. He's a dog. I know. He's great. I'm excited <laughs> about him. Derrick Henry's gone, though. Well, the new coach has said, well, actually, I'm open to him staying if he wants to, and so maybe they'll pay him. It's just a matter of the, can, they, can they afford him or not. Yeah. That's the thing, it was an interesting coaching agent. fire, though. Yeah, it was. I, was, I wasn't shocked. I kind of just felt like he was – I felt like he was a good coach and we'd had some success, AFC championship game, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes you just need a change, and yeah. I think he had just plateaued and gotten to this point where – it was just time for somebody new. Yeah. 
So I could agree with that. I thought Belichick would have been fun for a couple. Just come in and be like, I'm only going to do this for three years because I'm old as dirt, but let me whip this into shape. Let me, you know, and, but it didn't happen. That's yeah, I okay. thought he was going to go to Atlanta. Yeah. Apparently he did two interviews. Who needs to interview Bill Belichick? Yeah. I mean, just look at his resume and be like, okay, you're hired. But also <laughs> it comes down to, was he really that great of a coach? Because once Tom Brady left, it was like everything just fell apart. And then if he goes to Atlanta where they have nothing and he's going to be the same situation as he was in New England, he's just going to be like, okay, I'm going to retire halfway through the season. That's true. I wonder wonder if he was the GM. Like, did he draft Brady? I don't remember. I don't remember either. That's the question. That was what, 2000? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, 2000, 2001. Because he played Alabama in the Orange Bowl uh, like right around uh, Y2K. So, yeah, that was probably right. Tom Brady beat us in double overtime. We missed an extra point. See, I remember that. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Tom Brady. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so to kind of give the audience a better understanding of your timeline. So we talked about when you uh, were in Baltimore, you ended that in 2014, yep. got the call from Boston. Yep. So from 2014 to 2018, you're in Boston. Yep. And then from 2018 to 2020, Chicago, yep. 20, 2021 to 2022 in back, back to in Atlanta. Boston, back to Atlanta, back to oh. Atlanta. Yeah. Gotcha. Does it say Boston on there? It says Boston. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I <laughs> this is where radio is now. I programmed the Boston station from Atlanta and did afternoons in Atlanta. Gotcha. Um, so in Chicago, I went there. They wanted to put Bobby Bones on. They had a local morning show that they, um, the company wanted to let go. And so they, they did that. And I had success with Bobby in Boston. So they thought I could help in Chicago. Um, we were doing okay. We weren't knocking it out of the park in our ratings, but our competitor there wasn't either. And then COVID happened and the billing cut in half and, um, so they flipped it to a rock station, but my company was like, okay, we're doing this today, <laughs> but we want to keep you in the company. Um, and we're going to work on a job, finding you a job in the company to keep you around. And so the option was go back to Atlanta, do afternoons there. And then I got an opportunity to program my old station in Boston, um, shortly thereafter, which was fun. It's different doing it from remote. Um, but, uh, I had a good time working with my team again there that I loved and, um, yeah, long story short, um, that came to an end abruptly, uh, and surprisingly in the summer of 22, um, I got swept up in some company layoffs and then, um, I had a nice six month paid vacation and nice. about four and a half months in, um, Lynn Oliver Klein at Riverhouse called me and said, I've been thinking about doing something. Would you just come up here and meet me? Um, and I've been talking to other radio stations about a job. I'd actually talked to one other label and management company about a job here too. Um, and so I came up and met with Lynn and Zeb and I just, I don't know, something told me that this was it and this was right. So yeah, I feel that. Yeah. I was, it's, it's a home over there. It feels different than anything else. At Riverhouse. Yeah, and what they do, um, signing, you know, development artists and working on their socials, working on their, you know, streams, trying to get them noticed with the DSPs or SiriusXM or Pandora or, um, you know, all, all those streaming partners. And then they, they used to have a joint venture deal with, so we used to have a joint venture deal with Sony, and now we have one with Warner. And, um, you know, basically 
if if Warner's interested in taking one of our artists to radio, they partner with us and do that with a radio team. Um, and that way, Lynn doesn't have to go hire a full-fledged radio promo team. Um, and so it's a very interesting model. It's very different from most um, labels in town. And that's what was interesting to me. Like, I get to work on the ground floor. Like, I get to go to shows and I get to, you know, take notes and give my feedback to the artists about, you know, what I think works, what I think you know, they could do better or um, what, you know, hey, you got this great song that's out. Why is this not in your set? That kind of stuff. It's been um, very educational to me as someone that was in radio for 26 years. Um, uh, and I often say, like, I'm the new guy. I'm the new guy. I'm still learning. But um, but then there's been meetings that we've been in and, you know, um, they'll look to me. What, how would this do on the radio? What do you think, Lance? You know, that kind of stuff. And so it's been it's been great to have that input, too. You know, I have this question I'm about to ask you that's quite loaded. Okay. And you might not know how to answer it. Okay. But just know I'm coming at you with it. All right. So I was born in 2000. Um, radio was a thing, but... Radio still is a thing. Yes. <laughs> but like... But no, I know where you're going. Yeah. So I listened to a lot of CDs, um... Like my grandma would play like George Strait CDs and my my mom was playing like Reba and Seal and mm-hmm. and we didn't really really listen to the radio much. But then it started to become more of a thing, at least where I was from. We have Interesting. um like B one oh three nine, which was the like hip hop radio station. Then we had like uh I think Cat Country. Mm-hmm. We had a whole bunch of WCKT, yeah. yeah. So we had things that were coming along. Um I started to get a better understanding of it and it was starting to to develop what I like to listen to. Uh, but now then you have Sirius XM that comes along and now people are listening to satellite and I can't tell you the last time I listened to like FM radio. Okay. Then streaming comes along mm-hmm. and it's not just, or the, sorry, I should go back. Then you have the buying on iTunes mm-hmm. and I remember I had the little iPod shuffle in the iPod oh, yeah. and I'm sitting there like, <laughs> Pulling, buying songs for 99 cents. I'm, I have my dad sitting with me. Can I buy this song? Can I buy this song? Just making sure. And you're having to pay for this stuff. Now streaming. And everyone's just like plugging their phone in, into the car. And no one's really listening. It's a lot I do. Like Sirius XM. And it's like the actual FM radio isn't what it was. Satellite comes along. And now it isn't what it was because of all the streaming. So how have you been able to navigate? And I I don't want to say radio's dead. It's absolutely not dead. Correct. But with the trajectory that it's been on over the past 10, 15 years, how do you navigate keeping it on a steady line rather than like a down or? So I'm going to just, I'm going to sound a little like a hype man and then I'm going to play a little devil's advocate. Um, First of all, when's the last time you read a newspaper? I think probably when you're in that like weird age where you try and be like an adult, but you're still a kid. So like 12, okay. you like wake up in the morning, you like grab the newspaper. Like, Dad, can I read the so paper? You're 23 or 24, 23. I'm 23. I haven't had a birthday yet. So 12 years ago, there are still plenty of newspapers around, right? Um, it's a, it's a, it's a business. Is it thriving? Are they raking in the cash? No, 
but they're employing a lot of people in this country and um, they've moved to more of a digital model, things like that. So newspapers started their long, slow decline well before radio. I, I think the latest stat I saw when I worked for iHeart, this used to be drilled in our brain a lot, but now um, I haven't paid as much attention in the last few years. But I think radio still reaches around 87% of America every week, which is a lot. Now, that reach can be five minutes a week or that reach can be hours a week, right? And um, radio certainly has a demo that has shifted older. There's no question about it. Um, but once you get to people over the age of like 35, 40, much, much heavier radio listeners. Radio is easy because it's there and it's free. Um, there's a lot of things that radio are doing. Wrong is probably the right word, but they're also doing it out of a necessity to try to keep revenue up and keep it going like very long commercial breaks, things like that. You know, if you get in the car and you have a 10 minute commute to work, if you listen to one station, there's a chance you could hear 10 minutes of commercials on your way to work. Yeah. So there's things like that, but, um, but there's no barrier to entry with radio. It's there, it's free. It, you know, if you haven't plugged your phone in yet, when you crank up your car, it probably comes up right away. And that's what's kind of cool about it. I think, um, you know, Sirius XM, they put out a great product. The Highway, I believe, is their second most listened to station behind the Howard Stern station. Um, and oh, interesting. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, so they are they do a great job with that brand. Uh, my friend Johnny Chang runs uh, the Highway and, and really does an amazing job. Um, their barrier to entry is the price and the subscription model, right? Um, people are starting to get tired of all these monthly subscriptions, whether it's Netflix or Hulu or whatever. And so people can be sensitive to that, but um, you know they don't play any commercials because you're basically paying for the product, right? So there's a lot of things there, but I, radio, radio is in a, a, a generally a tough spot. Um, you know they also are doing kind of what newspaper did a long time ago, and they're moving to more of a digital model. Like iHeart has their app, and Odyssey has their app, and you know all the big companies really do. I think Cumulus actually pays iHeart to be on the iHeart app because it's iHeart Radio. And um, so there will be a day, um, I don't know if this is 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road, where there will be no reason for a stick in the ground to be broadcasting an FM signal. Maybe we'll all have 10G phones by then, or we'll have one satellite in the, the in space that covers free internet for the whole country in 10 years. Like, I mean, the way technology has advanced so much and so fast, um, who knows what's ahead. But this idea of a stick in the ground, and you can only have 15 of them because there's only so much space between 88.7 and 107.9 on the FM dial is going to be outdated. I mean, it's already started to a degree, but, um, but radio is, is, is probably where newspaper was 10 or 15 years ago now. Revenue is still a pretty high number, especially for the broadcast traditional spot revenue. Um, but it's, it's not what it was 10 years ago, that's for sure. And so it's going to be a long, slow decline and radio will have to reinvent itself. You know, there's been a lot of cutbacks in that industry, layoffs over the years. People are doing more and more, uh, DJs are doing multiple shows a day on different stations, both in and out of their market. You know, Boston's a great example with me. I was programming that from Atlanta. Well, it's cause they didn't want to hire somebody in Boston and pay another salary to do it. So they pay you a little bit more to do that extra basically full-time job. But, you know, that's not unusual um, across any industry, actually. You know, I know friends that um, that work for engineering firms, and they used to manage 16 or 17 projects, and they're managing 40 now. So it's it's something that's happening everywhere. Um, 
Does that did that answer your yeah, question? Yeah, definitely. Okay. I mean, I had someone uh, episode two. I had Clay Newman. Um, do you know him? No, the name sounds familiar, but I don't think I do. He managed uh, Hayden Kaufman for oh, a yeah. while. Okay, but he's got his start in radio in Texas. Hmm. Um, so he was doing stuff down there, and we kind of got. I asked him the same question because you're the second person I've had in radio. Um, but I was just. I'm always curious to know because. It's like any business, like you said, the newspaper thing, or um, like now you see if you go to um, Target or Best Buy or anywhere, you don't see the DVDs anymore. Right. They or just CDs. started. Pull- yeah. Yeah. They just started pulling like DVD movies and CDs off the shelf. Yeah. Um, because no one's buying them, and Blockbuster yeah. went out of uh, business years ago. Yeah. So I was just curious. Um, yeah what your opinion on that was. Great question. I don't know that I gave you my opinion. I think that was what I said was kind of pretty factual, but, um, but who knows? I mean, who knows what the future has in store? You never know what technology is going to come along next. And I, I, my personal opinion is that there's always going to be a need for it. There's always, a lot of people are lazy that don't want to create their own playlist. Sure. It's like essentially like Spotify and stuff where they have the curated playlist. People just want to, pull something up and just listen to whatever plays. Well, and like I said too, you know, when we have 10 G internet or free internet for everybody in America coming out of this one satellite in the sky, there could be a thousand national radio stations radio in quotes. Cause they're not coming out of the FM right. or AM band at that point. Um, uh, so there could be a thousand Nashville radio stations. They might only have 10 listeners each, but you know, that could be a thing. Um, did you, I don't know if you saw the story last year, I think Ford or GM said they weren't going to put AM radio in cars anymore. And they said the primary reason for that was starting in like 2025 or 2026. The primary reason for that is the AM uh, amplitude modulation interferes with some of the computer parts in the car. And cars are just basically one big computer now, right? It used to not be that way. Um, but radio is strong and has a very strong lobby. And they fought and um, got that element of the new cars taken out. So AM radio will continue to be in cars for at least a little while longer. What is the difference between AM and FM radio? Oh, boy. That's such a such a... Um, a, a nerdy answer. I've never um, honestly thought of it. <laughs> AM basically has two signals, um, one that runs along the ground and one that runs up and out the tower. Um, and so AM can go further distances, um, especially at night. It doesn't get impacted by the sun at, at night, so it, it can travel further. But it's just to, and then FM just comes out of a single tower, usually with uh, three or five bays. And FM isn't affected by the sun like AM is, so it's typically, you know, the the, the distance that it reaches. But it, you could have an AM station in Atlanta at night at full power, and you could hear it in Chicago. Um, but an FM station, usually full power is about 100,000 watts max. There are a couple of radio stations that are more powerful that are grandfathered in, but those are the exception rather than the rule. Um, but it's just two different types of radio frequencies, basically. Um, and like I said, AM has that component of a signal that travels along the ground and in the air, and then the FM is only in the air. And so the higher your tower, the further it goes, and then the more power, the further it goes to. So Interesting. Yeah. If you ever see like three or four towers in a row, that's an AM, that's an AM tower. And if you ever see a, a tower with like, it looks like like four or five little hooks at the top, that's an FM tower. That's how you know. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. This was all self-taught or did you like- You just learn being around for that long. What was your degree at my, my degree was political science. I oh, was, gotcha. was going to go to law school and I was going to go into politics. I think you would make a great lawyer. Day. Thank you. Have you been told that before? I have. Yeah, I don't know if that's a compliment or not. I think it I is have, a compliment. I have. Yeah, I, I was going to be president. You're so well-spoken. Thanks. 
that I think you could go up in front of a jury and just like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what kind of lawyer you would want to be, but I don't either. But if you were in front of a jury, I'd be like, I believe that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I'll take that as a compliment. Um, <laughs> so you should probably just be a defense attorney and just make everyone innocent. <laughs> um, but so I, I have this, uh, I mean, so, you know, Cody, mm-hmm. um, and we've had some songs in his market that have gone to radio. But when I say radio, it's like it went through the iHeart circuit. And I think his first song got 178 radio stations. Um, but I'm just curious because I don't really understand it. I never worked with the radio on that. Is If somebody sends a song in quotes like to radio, but it only hits that many stations in the certain market, like what what is the deciding factor for what radio stations it goes to, how many it goes to, um, and then if it if it's in a certain market or it goes across the whole continental U.S. Um, yeah, so just can you kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah, and it's not a simple answer. Um, you know, I, I would say 10, 15 years ago, local PDs in local markets had pretty much 100% say-so in what they were playing and what they wanted to add, what they wanted to move up, what they wanted to play more, what they wanted to play less. And there is this kind of unfair and not entirely true, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Like, it's just a stigma, maybe. That's that's not exactly what I'm looking for. Now I'm not being very lawyerly by not being able to figure out what I want. <laughs> I don't believe this guy maybe, anymore. See, look at that. <laughs> one one slip up and it all goes down the toilet. Um, like it's like a reputation that radio has that they don't that local stations don't get to choose their music at all. That is not true. I will say, what has happened is all these stations. You know, basically, what what would happen ten or fifteen years ago? Let's start there. If I was running a radio station in Atlanta, I would get a song and. Um, if I wanted to put it on my station, I'd put it on my station. I'd start playing it, you know, 10 times a week. And after you get to about 150, 200 spins on a radio station, mostly in the daylight hours, because we can play a song at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. all we want, and no one's going to really hear it. But once you get about 200 spins daytime on a record that plays, you know, between 6 a.m. and 7 p.m., then you can put it in what's called call-out research. And it's called call-out research because literally stations used to pay you know, interns to pick up the phone, go through their, you know, all their winners, like that one contest, call them and say, hey, can I play you like 15 clips of songs? And you tell me if you like it, you love it, you never liked it, you're tired of it, or you just don't care, no opinion, or you've never heard of it before. So that's call out research. And then they tabulate it all up and then the PD would look at the call out research. So you want to test a song that's pretty familiar because it doesn't do me any good to not play a song. And then not, and then test it, right? Real quick, when you say PD, what does PD stand for? Program director. Gotcha. So that's basically the person that's in charge of the music, in charge of, it's called imaging, the stuff that goes between the songs, like the big voice going, 94 on the bowl, gotcha. that kind of thing. And then also in charge of coaching and hiring and firing the, the talent, the jocks. Cool. So um, you'd sit down, you'd look at the music, and you'd be like, oh my God, this song is calling out really well. It's testing really great. Everyone says they love it. So you'd move it up and play it more. And then you play it till you got some burn on it till people said they were tired of hearing it and then you'd move it back down and, and you know, either off completely or to a, a category that's got like post-current that plays less often. So that's what would happen 10 or 15 years ago. Now what's happened is um, 
it's evolved from like literally picking up the phone and calling people and playing them songs over the phone or clips of songs to online research, right? People get recruited um, by a research company and they're asked, how many hours a week do you listen to the radio? What stations do you listen to? Now you can see what your competitor, uh, competitors' listeners think versus your listeners, all this stuff. And then, so what's happened is most of these companies do research in their top biggest markets to get the biggest sample possible. And then they average that all out and then the stations um, that aren't getting local research, local call-out research, use that that average of all the other stations. And that's pretty that's a pretty good way to do things. So it's not true that PDs and stations can't play whatever they, you know, that they have to follow a certain list. Um, there are some companies that are a little more strict on that than others, but typically, since you're averaging all the research, songs are going to start to test better, and then you want to follow the research, right? Like, I want good ratings if I'm running a radio station, so I want to play the songs that people like more. So it would be dumb for me to say, this song's testing 32nd out of 40, but I want to play it 55 times a week, and this song that's testing number three, I'm only going to play that 20 times. That would be bad for my ratings. So stations end up playing the same songs because stations play the songs that people like. One of the biggest complaints people have about radio is that radio plays the same songs over and over and over and over. Well, guess why? Because people say they want to hear the same song. They want to hear their favorite songs more often. That's what people say in research. So it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. People say they like finding new music, but (laughs) when stations play more new music, the ratings typically go down. And when stations get more conservative and play the big hits more often ratings typically go up i've uh i've also noticed that with um the highway mm-hmm. so if you're in the car for an hour and you're listening to the highway the whole way through chances are you're going to hear wait in the truck by hardy and lanny wilson three or four times so that's not true i think their <laughs> fastest rotation is about an hour and a half so this is this is the misconception right too um that that stations play the same song three or four times an hour the fastest i ever turned over my biggest played songs was in boston and it was about an hour 10 minutes we tried to be the younger newer hipper station so we tried to play our new songs more but it's it's not possible to hear the same song in the station an hour within the same hour it's just not possible but like how do they <laughs> determine I mean, it feels like it sometimes so, okay I'm like, so I'm that's like, totally different right yeah but that's what i'm talking about like there's this reputation or um, false sense of reality when it comes to that stuff there's the other thing too that i'll point out we may play three luke combs songs an hour and luke is one of my favorite artists on the planet but if you think about Beautiful Crazy and Love You Anyway, and they kind of sound similar. So sometimes people think, God, I just heard this song, but it may have been a different Luke Combs song 25 minutes ago. And I'm not like, I'm happy to hear the same song over and over. Like, I love everything that the highway plays. And, and they're always, they're like very on top of it with new music. Sure. The highway does play a lot of new music, which is great for new music fans. Yeah. And I love what they do with like On the Horizon and the highway mm-hmm. finds. And it's a great station. It's one of the best. I mean, yeah. like you said, it's their top, one of their top ones. But it's just, it's interesting to me because like you hear, maybe not in an hour, <laughs> but in, <laughs> the, right. in the same, in this like short amount of time. If you're on a two hour road trip, you might hear it twice. Yeah. You hear like the song multiple times, but I'm just curious, like I was always curious the determining factor of like the songs that they put on there. And I know being around the industry, I've seen like, okay, a label like the radio team and whatnot, they're going to pitch the song to the highway and they're going to try and get it on there. But is there, do they really have, I know they have, they have, the, I don't know how to word the question, but they, they get, 
I think I, I think what you're trying to say is is it and what you're trying to ask is and this is the answer. Yes, that team decides what songs they want to put on the highway and play on the highway. Yes. Once they get it on and it's playing 10 to 30 times a week, it has to start performing in their research before it will move up and get played more. And that's 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 kind of what radio is now. Like if I in the, was the PD in Boston or Chicago at my radio stations there and I believed in a song, I could play the crap out of it for a little bit. So it's 30, them, 35 times a week. It's them determining. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that is relationships with the label people. And like if 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 a label person is one of their favorite people in the world, and they come with them and. You know, it might lend a little more weight to something than if it's a record uh, record rep that they don't particularly like or care for or gets on their nerves or drives them crazy. Um, so there, it's a relationship game, but also it's a music game. I mean, you know, Johnny's an old radio guy. Uh, he worked in Houston at KKBQ for many years, and he, um, he's got a great ear, and he knows a hit when he hears one. Now, I've heard songs, and I'm like, this is a smash. Nope, total stiff. <laughs> Never made it top 40, but I've also flipped it around. I've been like, this song is horrible. I'm not playing it till it gets top 20. And next thing you know, top 20 rolls around. And okay, I put it on. And then it becomes one of the biggest songs um, on, you know, during, during that time. So, you know, no one, no one has the magic. Trust me, if someone had the magic golden ears and heard every hit, they would be programming all of the radio stations in the country. Um, music is an art form, you know. Um, some of this research probably gets a little too scientist-y. Um, and then there's also factors that go into radio stations putting music on the air, different types of country. You've got like traditional country, I would call like Luke Combs and George Strait and um, Justin Moore. And then you've got like rock country, I would call Miranda Lambert that. I would call, um, uh, I'm kind of blanking. Um, I mean, our, our Riverhouse guy, Austin Snell, who's yeah. signed with the Warner team, certainly Brantley. like rock country. Brantley Gilbert, yes, great. Josh Ross. Yep. Absolutely. And then you've got, uh, I think like AC country and I would call that like, you know, um, Gabby Barrett and, and then you have just like core, which I would call Blake Shelton, Kenny Chesney. Blake might be more traditional now, but Kenny Chesney, just right down the middle yeah. country, uh, Billy Keith Currington, Urban. Keith Urban, great. He might be more like pop country, yeah. AC pop, but, um, so you want, you don't want a Carrie Underwood back-to-back with um, a Keith Urban, back-to-back with a Shania Twain, back-to-back with a Gabby Barrett. You want, you know, maybe a Miranda and then a Luke Combs and then a Brantley Gilbert. So you want a balance in your log, too, so you try not to have too many of one certain type of song on, on the air and rotating at any time. So I was just curious, um, going back to the question I was trying to get out, but I didn't really know how to word it, is that when if you do hear wait in the truck a bunch of times is if that's the radio like that's the highway determining okay i'm gonna play this because it's our most like responded to song and it's it's doing the best if that's them playing it or if it's like almost algorithmic like just playing on its own based on the data that it's collecting so no they program that radio station and they have tiers of, of categories where they play on so but if you're hearing it really often it's probably researching really well and it's being played you know every hour and a half or so gotcha um if you're hearing it you know every three or four hours it could be a song that is just getting enough spins to get some research and figure out but if you're hearing if you're hearing a song like wait in the truck and that was more like a year ago yeah. i think when it was probably at peak airplay maybe a year and a half even and it won so many awards so yeah. it's, it's all it was a big song, warranted right? yeah yeah so no they don't have an algorithm like 
um, a Spotify station or Pandora station that is categories of rotations that are set. You know, they might have five categories and the first one might be 10 times a week and the second one might be 25 and the third one might be 30 and the next one might be 45 and the top one might be 60 times a week. So they move songs up and down through those categories based on, you know, the lower categories, that's gut and feeling. It may be a favor here every now and then to a radio station or an art or a record rep or an artist or a record company, record label. And then your top categories are based on research. So we also have, now that they're streaming, an artist could release a song and debut at number one on iTunes charts or sure. whatever, Billboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have your radio number ones. Can you explain how, I mean, I guess the streaming is a different story as right. far as getting a number one, mm-hmm. but can you kind of go into depth about a radio number one, what that means for an artist, how you get there and how you determine that? So radio number one, uh, so there there are different charts. There is strictly the radio airplay chart. That is, um, there are two big charts. There's the billboard chart and the media-based chart. Um, I think the media-based chart is still printed in USA Today every week um, on their website or in their newspaper uh, <laughs> if you're traveling through an airport and want to grab one in the lounge. But um, those two charts, they have a little different methodology, but they're generally similar in the way that they do it. They would monitor about 145, 155 radio stations in the biggest markets in the country, and those 155 stations determine the chart. Um, the other charts are kind of a hybrid. Like I know the billboard hot 100 is a mix of radio airplay, streaming, shazams, like sales, all that stuff. Um, and that I I will go back, jumping back to like things that help radio stations and stations like the highway make decisions on records is they do look at streaming numbers. I mean, I saw the new, um, the brand new song from uh, Megan Maroney is streaming like a million a day, no caller ID, streaming like a million streams a day, which is pretty unbelievable so you're going to be hearing that all over every radio station very soon i promise you but um so so you have that so yes you can have a number one on the billboard hot 100 without having radio airplay that's pretty rare because radio airplay is a part of that chart but i think Lil nas x was a great example right mm-hmm. like um what was that song? Old Town Road. Old Town Road. Like it had no real radio airplay in the beginning but it was streaming and selling like crazy so it was up there what a uh, number one on the radio airplay chart means to an artist is they get to go on Jimmy Fallon and say, here's Luke, you know, with the eight number ones, here's Luke Combs singing his latest or whatever. Um, and obviously then they can charge more for shows because they're going to be exposed right. to that many more people. They're going to be selling more tickets, that kind of stuff. Uh, a number one radio hit <laughs> means a lot to the songwriters because radio pays ASCAP and BMI a percentage of their revenue, and then that gets directly distributed to the songwriters. I don't know the current figures, and a lot of songwriters are signed with publishing companies where they take you know a third or a half or whatever, but they set up the rights, and, and they do some of the legwork to get that artist's songs to artists like... If I were signed to a publishing company and I wrote a song, my publishing company would go pitch it to people like Blake Shelton and Jason Aldean and, and Luke Bryan and try to get them to record it. I wouldn't be able to do that on my own, so I'm giving up some of my ownership of that song to my publishing company, so they're doing that legwork for me. But a number one song on country radio, I've been told, is about worth a million bucks to a songwriter now. Individually? If, well, no, per song. Gotcha. So if there's three writers, that's like 333000 each, if one of those writers has a publishing company that takes half, then they might get 160 something thousand. 
I don't know if those numbers are completely accurate, but that's just what I've been told. Um, and again, radio stations pay a percentage of their revenue to ASCAP and BMI, and they distribute that. Streaming is different because that goes to the artist. There is a small streaming royalty that does go to the songwriters, but it's pretty small. Songwriters make their money on radio, airplay, and artists, um, their label signs them, and their label pays them and gives them nice advances, and they get it, but they get their money mostly on touring and streaming, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I think... So is that the same way with like the highway? Can is I know they had the countdown, so they had like the number one song that week or whatever. Um I think the highway's countdown is more based on like listener votes gotcha. um than it is on actual like numbers of songs. But if you listen to like the Bobby Bones countdown or you listen to uh the Fitz countdown, those are based they use the billboard and media based charts to count down the top songs in the country based on all the those 150 so radio stations that are monitored um i think the highway does more of a like this is your favorite songs here's who you've voted voted for the most this week i'm sure in there is how much they're playing it but i i don't know if the number one song on that highway's countdown is actually their most played song every week i don't know yeah. that i think it's i think they use some sort of voting in there too I'm a, and I think the highway does pay the same royalties that like a regular radio station would. And I love the highway. You know, clearly, yeah, I do. <laughs> it's a great radio station. Yeah, they do a it really is. Great job. Um, but that's more. That's always like they're spinning the new stuff, um, which I listen to it because I like to keep up to date with what's yeah. going on and what's doing super well. But my heart is at the more traditional and like early two thousands country, like early Blake Shelton and Tim McGraw. Um, you like, like their that. Y2K channel? I love Y2K. <laughs> and that's what I was going to say is I've also seen that they've played some newer stuff that's more the traditional route. So how can is it possible to get like a newer song pitched to Y2K? So yeah, I know um I know they do that like if Dustin Lynch has a new song, they'll put it on there and like spotlight it for a little while. Or same like if Tim McGraw has a new song because he fits in that Y2K channel, they'll spotlight like new music from our Y2K artists. So they do a little bit of that. They just choose to do that. Like they think it's a cool feature to have on that channel. Um, no one's making them or, but they probably did some research and their listeners of that channel probably said, oh, if Tim McGraw puts out a new song, I'd like to hear it. So that's probably why they do that would be my guess. Interesting. I see, I mean, Austin Snell has been having a lot of radio success. Yeah, I don't know that's a lot yet, but it's it's about to be a lot. <laughs> prior, prior to... He's had some. He's had some, yeah. The highway, for sure. In, yeah, in my eyes, it's a lot because prior to even... I knew what Riverhouse was for a long time, but um, before I even knew, moved to Nashville, I think. Or maybe I, it was of recent, but like I had just moved... I saw like wasting all these tears. Yeah. Like had been on the horizon and then it started mm -hmm. playing all the time. And then you're getting all these other songs on the highway. Um, so it's just been cool to see that. And I'm just curious what your experience has been taking a, a new artist. And when you pitch a new artist to them saying he's got, here's everything that he's mm -hmm. doing. And you kind of just explain that. Yeah. I mean, um, we had a lot of success with Austin. You know, he came out of the gate with Excuse the Mess and had a lot of streams for a first song released by a brand new artist that, you know, no one ever heard of before. Um, and then, you know, we, we decided to do the cover of Wasting on These Tears. And that was all done right before I started. But it was out pretty soon after I, I, I got there, like two or three weeks after it was put out. And 
I I believe that the whole point of that was just to do a cover, do something a little bit different, like a dude doing a cover of a, a, a girl song and try to just get streams and attention. Well, uh, you know, then I come on board and my job is basically to work with the DSPs to try to get a story going um, on our artists um, and series in the highway. And so that um, that Warner or, you know, a major label wants to pick them up and take them to radio. So, and, you know, um, I had dinner with Johnny shortly after I got the job. He had just gotten his job at Pandora. He wasn't programming the highway yet. And uh, he really dug the Austin stuff. And then... Um, he got a text from me and he was like, Hey, can we talk more about Austin? So then I started sharing some of the stats some of the streaming numbers, all that. And then we, uh, we actually, Austin landed very proud of him. The second ever, um, Sirius XM Pandora artist accelerator program. There was only one other artist and she was like a, an urban, like R and B artist. Um, that was the first one. And Austin was the second one and the first country artist. And basically they saw something in him where they said, we're going to expose this song and songs from this artist for the next year, year and a half, two years. And we are going to put it out there and then see what people think. And so they started playing Wasting All These Tears a lot and ended up being a massive hit for them. It was their most played song um, for a couple of weeks on the highway and um, did really, really great. And then, you know, the fans just wanted more, wanted more, wanted more. So um, Austin ended up getting signed to Warner Nashville with a joint venture deal with us. And uh, we are excited. We're putting him out to radio, um, to terrestrial radio. So he will go, uh, they call it going for ads. So we're going for ads on May 6th, which is the two-year anniversary of Austin actually moving here to Nashville. So for all awesome. of that to happen for him in two years is is really, really incredible. It usually takes a lot longer. I mean, 10-year town, right? Yeah. But, um, so very proud of him, very proud of the work that he's put in. He's got a great story, and um, and he writes great songs. That's the key, country music especially. It's about the songs. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be an exciting year, and... Um, you know, terrestrial radio typically takes a while, but we could be looking at a number one song, uh, for Austin, you know, this time next year ish, maybe a little later, maybe next spring. Um, so we'll get it out there. It's pray all the way home. It's going to be the radio single. Uh, the highways played a lot already. So it's familiar to at least some of the audience. And then, um, if we play it a lot, people like it, you know, we'll see how far it goes. It's going to be a great summer. He's out on tour with Jason Aldean this summer too. Yeah. It's going to be really awesome. Exciting. I think I'm going to, uh, Go to one of those shows. You better. Um, but this is a question that I've been asked a lot. And due to my lack of radio knowledge in the past, I understand what singles are and then you have the albums. And But can you kind of explain to the audience what is the determining factor for, say, Luke Combs puts out a record mm -hmm. and he's got 15 songs on mm -hmm. the album. What is the determining factor for pulling this specific song to be a single, a radio single? So, great question, and that's changed over the years. You know, 10, 15 years ago, it was what, you know, radio program, like 10, 15 years ago, I would get a, a CD, a little white label press CD made with four songs on it, and they would ship it to us, and they'd say, give these four songs a listen. Tell us which one you like, which one you think would fit on the radio. They would kind of survey us. I'm sure there were some listener data in there, and um, now you put out an album, you get streaming numbers immediately. Like day one, you can go onto Spotify or Pandora, any of the, and you can see which of those songs are streaming the most. And so these days, the major labels in Nashville typically use streaming numbers to decide like 
their fans are saying they want this song. They are they are listening to this song more than any of these others. So that's typically how the decision is made. They can override that. It's completely up to the record label. Now, once you get to be Luke Bryan or Jason Aldean or Carrie Underwood, you can pretty much say this is going to be the next single. Luke yeah. is obviously at that level too. Um, but, um, you know, some of the major label teams like have uh, a marketing team that decides what song and really convinces the artist that this is the one that you need to do if you really want it to be a, a, a hit. So there's still some of that stuff where, you know, they'll play some songs for radio people and see what they think. But streaming is probably the predominant factor in choosing what what songs will go to radio and, and, and some sort of indicator of their success. And then also radio tours. Are those still a thing? So they are still a thing, but they're a lot less of a thing than they used to be. Radio tour um, for you listening is basically they used to put an artist in a car <laughs> with a record rep and, you know, a couple players from the band. And let's say they were going to do a Northeast swing. So they'd fly into Baltimore and they'd go see, or maybe they'd fly to DC. They'd go see WMCQ in DC and they'd play four or five songs in the conference room and maybe go to lunch. Then they'd drive to Baltimore and then they would go see WPOC and they would do like an afternoon thing and then uh, play four or five songs for the PD, introduce them to the artist, then go to dinner. Then the next morning they'd drive to Philly and they would go see uh, the Philly station and do the same thing in the conference room and then play for like five, six people and fly four or five songs and they go to lunch and then they'd go to New York and there's no country station in New York now but there used to be um, and then they go to Hartford, Connecticut and then they go to Boston and then they go to New Hampshire and then they go to Maine and then they would fly home to Nashville after like a week's run so they basically would do that for all those 150 radio stations that really count on the chart um, that's really expensive to do yeah. um, you know hotel flights rental cars vans if you have a band you're taking with you all that so they Record labels tend to be a little more targeted. Like if there's going to be a show where they're opening up for someone in Boston, they fly there. Maybe they pay for hotel rooms for like the Portland, Maine PDs to come down and the Hartford PD to come in and um, the Providence, Rhode Island PD to come in to Boston, see the show, hang out with the artists, maybe even do a dinner or lunch before the show or something like that. So it's a little different, but every now and then they'll get out on the road and do an old school radio tour. Sure. And try to keep it cheap and in the budget. But um yeah, it's just um, also the the record label revenue, I think, used to just be a lot more where you could make a couple million bucks off one single. And, you know, that's just not really the case anymore. Yeah. So they're having to just do things a little differently. So there's also your typical radio, like country radio. And then you have Texas radio where you can get your own separate number ones that are different mm-hmm. from your everyday ones here. In <laughs> your everyday country. number ones. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> just like when someone says number one, you think like, okay, it's right. just a country radio number one, like a Tennessee Orange or Mind on sure. You, George Burge just got one. Um, but you have the Texas radio, which is completely different. Like I think Mike Ryan's got a bunch of Texas number ones mm-hmm. or um, Aaron Watson, yep. but they don't have number Wade ones. Bowen. Yeah. Yeah. So you yeah. have a lot of, I think, like Randall King. and. Mm-hmm. So there are basically two Texas country charts, and I want to say there's like maybe 50, 60 stations, and then some of them are online stations that play mostly like Red Dirt, Texas country. Um, you know, Pat Green is a great example of someone that was Texas, Texas country, touring in Texas. You know, Cody Johnson started out that way oh. and crossed over and, and made it to Pat, Pat Green had a couple big hits, and I believe at least one number one, if not two, on mainstream country radio. Um, and But... 
Yeah, it's just Texas is just kind of a different world down there. Really I know is. some of those stations that report to the Texas chart are in Oklahoma, or I know there's one in Colorado Springs because I've, I've taken our Texas artist Grant Gilbert there before, um, and probably in Louisiana and Arkansas, like Southwest Arkansas too, and stuff. So it's just um, it's just a little different. It's just. You know, someone sat down one day and said, I'm going to make a Texas chart, and here are the stations that are going to be reporters to it, and they, they own that chart, and they there are people that work songs to that chart, but it also gives those artists, like uh, our artist Grant Gilbert had a number one um, last year, uh, towards the end of the year, with Six Pack State of Mind on the Texas chart. It was first ever Texas number one, so that's a big deal and awesome that he was able to celebrate. They have Texas radio awards down there that's different Which is from- awesome. Yeah, it's really great. So, yeah, someone literally one day said, I want to make a Texas country chart, and I'm going to put these stations on it. And the PDs, you know, log in and say how many times they play things every week, and that's that. Interesting. It's that simple. (laughs) Can you, real quick, just kind of give an overview of what your role at Riverhouse Artists is? I know I kind of said about the VP of promotion and artist development, but can you just more in depth of what that is. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a catch-all. I'm, I'm basically, um, you know, responsible for trying to help our artists get better and grow their careers in, in every way possible. Um, I, I think my primary responsibilities are, you know, working, pitching songs to Sirius and um, The Highway, along with all the DSPs like Apple Music, Amazon Music, um, Spotify, Pandora. Pandora and SiriusXM are owned by the same company, too. So that's a Is great still Liberty synergy. Media? I, they at least have like a majority ownership or something. Um, but uh, so that along with if Austin is going to be in Denver then I might fly out with Austin or fly out separately. Um, and I go, you know, work on getting a hang with the local radio people there, whether it's a lunch or a dinner or even just, you know, 30 minutes backstage hanging out, playing the music. Um, so, so my job is, is along with helping with, you know, the shows and helping. I mean, we get phone requests all the time for our artists, whether they're, you know, baby acts or they're some of our, our larger acts. Um, coordinating that with local radio stations. I took um, our artist Trey Lewis and Austin Snell through the radio remotes where they have 25 radio stations basically in this one big room with a bunch of cubicles and literally goes station to station and does all these interviews that ended up getting aired back on um, the local stations because they're all broadcasting live for the CMAs from Nashville. And um, so that too. And then just, just, you know, playing songs for my friends. Like I have, I have friends that like, we have three songs from Trey Lewis that he records and I go, Hey, check these out. Tell me, do you think these are good? What do you, you know, do you think this could work on radio? I'm not out there yet actively calling and asking radio stations to add our records and play them. That's typically going to be Warner's job. But, um, but we've had some big successes and big wins on the highway with Austin Snell and, um, the pickle jar, pickle jar has a show called, yep. uh, up all night with, uh, that runs on all the 38 cumulus country stations and, Trey Lewis is being played on there as a spotlight artist right now, and that's really cool. That's because of the relationship I have there and that the songs are great. And the guy that programs that show is a big Trey Lewis fan. Austin's on there too, and that's going to lead right into the, the the full terrestrial radio campaign starting in May. Uh, and we've got Austin playing you know, multiple events for radio people between now and then at CRS. And um, iHeart brings in their country programmers, like 60 of them for meetings. And so we'll get a chance to get Austin in front of them. Um, in February later, I think, yeah, later this month. And then, um, 
and then you know Key West Songwriter Festival, the labels fly some radio people down, and so Austin will play in front of them there. So it's just a matter of getting. So that's my job, basically, just to spread the word, and then also you know go to some shows and talk to our artists about their their sets and you know what um, what they could do better or. Or, you know, just my opinion. I mean, that's it's kind of an opinion-based business. I can give my opinion, and the artist can say, well, okay, thanks for your yeah, opinion. You don't know music. But I'm, never... not, I'm not doing that, you yeah. know? And that's that's great. It's up to them. But, um, but my job is just basically to get our artist exposure, introduce them to as many people, radio, and just general fans as possible. And, um, yeah, and just get their careers off the ground. So It's awesome. Yeah. Well, um, to close up, what would be your advice to someone looking to get in the industry or looking to get in the radio or someone that's already in the industry that's kind of just trying to navigate the waters? Radio specifically is probably the toughest um, just because of the state of the industry. You know, it's, it's not an industry that's experiencing a lot of growth, especially from the hiring perspective. But, you know, I think the best thing that you can do is if you don't live in a major market like Atlanta or Boston or Chicago, if you live in a mid, mid to smaller market, go knock on your radio station's door and find out if you can join the street team and go out to their events and represent them and be engaged with the fans that come up to the table when you're at a, you know, when you're at a, a, a remote broadcast and trying to get people to come into the T-Mobile store, you know, for the deal they're having, like go and be engaged, put your phone away and talk to the, the radio station fans that come up. Trust me, if you're a good street team member, your boss is going to notice and wants you doing more. Um, and then, um, and then, you know, just make sure you communicate what you want to do. If you want to be on the air, then tell your boss, tell your program director, your promotions director, like this is what I eventually want to do. I've seen, all the time, like interns start sitting in with the morning show and just watching. And then, you know, next thing you know, they're saying five words during a segment and, you know, playing a game. And then the next thing you know, they become a part of the show. So it can happen. Um, it's just a lot more rare than I think it used to be. And then for the music business, I think if you want to do country music, number one is move to Nashville. And then number two is go out and seek those internships and apprenticeships that may not pay much. They may be 15 bucks an hour for 15 hours a week to start out. Um, but you can quickly prove yourself. I mean, you've done a great job at this. You know. Um, you just show that you've got the work ethic and that you can find talent. But it's not always about that, too. There's so many different jobs in the music business that can be done, from marketing to placing tour ads and just general ads to try to get people Accounting. to discover. Yeah, I mean, there's anything. Yeah. Business management here, like... One of my um, favorite teachers from high school, her daughter works here for a business management company. And so she doesn't touch the music at all, but she manages all the artists money and the labels money. And um, so there's, but I mean, if you want to do country music, number one, you got to get here and it's not a very cheap town to, to move to anymore. And that's (laughs) quite a barrier to entry for a lot of people, but that's really, if you want to do, you know, non-radio music business stuff, you got to come to Nashville, but it is a great city. It is great. I love it here. Yeah, it's really awesome. I got it tattooed on my arm. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Okay. I got it like after four months of being here. Oh, nice. Well, you're committed now. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine I'd never live here again. <laughs> Part of my story, whatever. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Do you want to plug uh, your socials, your LinkedIn or whatever? Oh, I guess you don't yeah, have, you have Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm on Instagram at Lance Houston 615, but 
I'll be honest, I'm 46, so <laughs> I, I basically repost all the River House stories, and that's <laughs> about it. But uh, my dog Kona's on there. You can go see my dog Kona. She's the best. Um, she's an 11-and-a-half-year-old border collie that I love dearly. Um, but, um, yeah, just, um, you know, get in there and find new music, find artists that you love, and tell your friends. Like, I found this new artist that I love, and do it if it's mine, please, but also if it's not mine. Like that's what helps keep music growing and flourishing, and um, and there's more avenues for artists that aren't on major labels to put out songs. You know, you can be an artist and just put a song out to to all the DSPs, Spotify, digital. What, what's DSP? Digital um, streaming platform. Streaming platform. Yeah, thank you. Um, an artist can just put them up. They can record a song, bad, good, indifferent, terrible, and put it out there. So there's just, that option didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago. Um, right. So go find uh, artists you're passionate about and tell friends. Send them songs. It's the best thing that you can do to help the music business. Cool. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Behind the Music Biz, a Ray's Rowdy podcast. Thanks again to our guest, Lance Houston. Thank you. Be sure to rate and follow the podcast, and you can check out more from Ray's Rowdy at raysrowdy.com and on social media at raysrowdy. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Behind the Music Biz, and you can find me on social media at Peyton Heben. That's P E Y T O N H E B E N. And we'll see you all next Tuesday for episode 14. <laughs>